beloved saints, the grass withers and the flower falls, but this, the word of our God, remains forever. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. A psalm of David. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask that he would bless our time uh, in it today. Heavenly Father, eternal God, you have told us that indeed all flesh is like the grass. It is a breath and then it is gone. But here in our hands we hold something eternal, something around long before we were and will be around long after us because your word abides forever. And so we ask that you would grant that we would give it our undivided attention and that we would be receptive to all that it has to say and that our beliefs, our understanding, and our expectations would all be brought into accord with your word. We ask this all in the name of your Son, who is the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our hope. Amen. Uh, you, may be, you may be seated. I'm sure you've all uh, heard the old adage, uh, bad company ruins good morals. Uh, but I wonder if you realize that it's not just an old adage. It's scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, and it's found in the context of Paul warning against false teachers, in that particular context, those who deny the resurrection from the dead. His instructions are clear. Don't spend time listening to false teachers because they will corrupt you. And he's not telling uh, the, the Corinthians that they just happen more than any other church to be weak and pitiful and uh, they're, just, they're just not strong enough. He's telling them something that's true for all of us. Because none of us is so strong that we can't be influenced. None of us is so strong, none of us is at that point in life where we can just drop our guard and believe that we won't be tempted and pulled towards something that is sinful, unhelpful, and destructive. And because that's true, we need to be particularly concerned about whom we spend our time with because we will become like the company we keep. The people we spend our time with will affect us, change us, and shape us. And because that's true, we need to hear Psalm 101 because that's what addresses 
Uh, we've just finished up uh, our study of the book of Malachi. And in a few weeks, I hope, uh, Lord willing, to start First uh, and Second Thessalonians, maybe First Thessalonians, maybe before the sabbatical, and uh, come back and do Second Thessalonians after. We'll see. But in the weeks, for a couple of weeks, I'd like to spend some time in a couple of psalms. Psalm 101, in particular, is written by King David, possibly on the occasion of his coronation when he became king over Israel. Uh, whether or not that's right, whenever it was written, it is a reflection on his role as king in Israel and his kingship. Specifically, he addresses where his heart must be focused if he is to do his job well as king. It must be focused on the things of God. He cannot rule over God's people if his heart is far from God. And from there, he, consi- he considers how this affects uh, those whom he will allow around him, and his counselors and things like that. And this has implications for our elders because they are rulers in God's church. But let's be honest, it really has implications for every single one of us. It applies to all of us. And my hope as we look through the psalm this morning is simply to see this. Those who wish to grow in godliness, which is I hope all of us, those who wish to grow in godliness must spend time with God and surround themselves with those who love the Lord. Uh, That's really where Psalm 101 drives us this morning. Uh, And these are necessary safeguards for us uh, if we would guard our hearts. So let's uh, jump in and look. To see this, what we want to start with is David's own thoughts about his kingdom and how he feels this need to literally like clean house in Israel and remove any who might draw his heart away from God. Uh, but there's a possible misunderstanding there and that we want to avoid. And so we're also going to look at Jesus, the greater king, and whom he spent his time with. And that will help us avoid some misunderstandings here. And my hope is that through all of this, we will think about where and with whom we spend our time so that we might encourage one another in our pursuit of the Lord. That's really uh, my goal today as we we jump into this uh, beautiful Psalm 101. So why do I say that David feels the need to clean house? Let's start there. Uh, It comes really from the last verse, verse 8. He says this, Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land, cutting off all evildoers from the city of the Lord. Uh, Sounds like cleaning house to me. Uh, This is part of what David sees as his calling as king in Israel, removing evildoers from God's kingdom. And this statement that that ends the psalm is the conclusion to the seven verses that precede it. So the question is, how does David arrive at this point? That he sees this need... Uh, to remove the wickedness uh, from God's kingdom. Well, he starts in verse 1 with God's love and God's justice and how David stands in awe of them. In fact, he says he wants to sing about them. He wants to write songs about them. 
He's inspired by who God is, the God of love and justice. Both uh, David's, David's inspired by both God's kindness toward his people as well as God's absolute standard of righteousness because God is not a God of relative justice but of absolute justice. Uh, He demands absolute perfection. And David longs to be more like him. He says in verse 2, I will ponder the way that is blameless. I will walk with integrity in my heart and within my house. And so, while on the one hand, God's absolute standard of perfection is intimidating... It's also appealing to David. David was a man after God's own heart. And in God's blameless perfection, David sees something beautiful and desirable. And he said, I want to be like that. David doesn't write this psalm that says, you know what? I'd like to be pretty good. I'd like to be a little bit better than everyone else. He doesn't write a psalm that says, I'd just like to stay slightly ahead of the pack. He longs to be blameless, without flaw, perfect, unstained by sin. That's what integrity is about. That that word shows up in our psalm. Integrity is when your outside matches your inside. David doesn't just want to praise God with his lips, but with his heart and his life as well. And he realizes that that means getting rid of impediments in his life that might draw him away from that goal. And so he starts with his eyes in verse 3. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. He understands that what we set before our eyes can capture our hearts. And he doesn't want to let anything in that is going to war against him and this goal. How different is that than the common attitude we hear today? Oh, that I can watch such and such and it doesn't affect me. (laughs) If that were true, you would have no problem not watching it because after all, it has no effect on you, right? Uh, (laughs) Now I think we we, we see a verse like verse 3 and we tend to think of of men who are very visual. What do they set before their eyes? And, And that's good. We need to think about that. Men, the Lord is telling you not to set anything before your eyes that is worthless. Get rid of it. Don't give it an opportunity. But I think we would be naive to think that it's only men and visual stimuli that are being addressed by this verse. Women might put reading materials or movies or TV or something else before their eyes that breed discontentment with their husbands, their living situations, or things like that. Novels and magazine articles and Movies and TV shows can be just as tempting and destructive as pornography can be. The point here is not to limit the kinds of temptations we face because anything that we give our time to that leads us away from finding our contentment in God and in His holiness is a dangerous companion. 
That could be what we watch, it could be what we read, what we listen to, it could be anything else. It's about not delighting in what is impure. That's what verse 4 says. Anything that draws your heart to what is impure is at war with God and it's clamoring for your loyalty. And so really what this all comes down to is the heart. Everything that you do is a reflection of what's in your heart. What's happening outside only reveals what's going on inside. A heart that longs to be blameless, to be like God, doesn't ask, how close can I get to evil without going too far? A heart that longs to be blameless asks, how far can I get from what is evil and what longs to devour me? And that will affect whom we spend our time with. David understands this. And so he says in verse 3, I hate the work of those who fall away. Long before Paul ever said, bad company ruins good morals, David understood that reality and wrote a psalm about it. Because spending your time with those who take pleasure in the things of the world will draw you into that world. And, And we know how they start. A little mockery. It's always a good place to start. Oh, what's the matter? Are you you too good for us? Sorry, we didn't realize you were so holy. So far above us lowly people, right? Mocking your desire for holiness, they try to make you ashamed of it. Or sometimes they'll pull you in subtly with gossip and slander. Did you hear? Can you believe It's tempting. It's alluring. But it has no place among God's people. And the promise is always a minimizing promise. A little isn't going to do any harm. If it was a cup of poison... Would you take it if I said, oh, a little is probably not going to harm you. But a little is never enough. Because the shame follows. And when, when shame comes, what's that temptation? It's to run from God, not to Him. And where do you look for companionship? With the ones who were with you when you brought the shame upon yourself. That's how the cycle goes. And God knows this. So through the prophet Isaiah, God warned, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves. Bad company ruins good morals. Be on guard. According to verse 5, at the heart of all of these sins, it can be summed up with one word. Arrogance. Arrogance is simply an elevated view of yourself and your abilities. And it comes from being too focused on yourself and not others. 
It's when all you can see is your wants, your desires, your accomplishments, your hurts. And and arrogance manifests itself in so many different ways. It could simply be uh, self-confidence, misplaced self-confidence, thinking that you aren't as in desperate need of grace as everyone else. I can get closer. I'm not going to let myself be affected. I know better than that. I'm stronger than that. The Bible tells us, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Arrogance might be trying to present a false view of yourself, exaggerating your successes and ignoring your struggles. Arrogance could simply be, uh, be thinking that everything you do is important. Posting pictures and updates of everything you do, eat and drink on social media. Perhaps you always talk about yourself and not the other person in the room. Or perhaps you simply just always talk and never listen. Arrogance can take many shapes, but all its shapes are at odds with God. And David understands how deadly all of those things are, how, how they're opposed to, to God's justice and how they are at war with godliness. He understands that, that bad company incites arrogance and it ruins good morals. And so he's determined to surround himself, verse 6, only with those who are blameless. He, he surrounds himself with the kindest of people he wants to be like. He seeks counsel not from those who tell him what is easy, but from those who will tell him what is good and right. He understands that that if he wants to be driven towards integrity, he needs to surround himself with people who have integrity. But he doesn't just want this for himself. Because if he surrounds himself with godly counselors, but leaves the people he's been called to lead surrounded by wicked counselors, he knows those people who are under his charge will be led astray. And it's the king's job to protect his people. And so then he knows he must clean house. Verse 8, he must drive the wicked from the land. That's what leaders in God's house have to do. That's why elders are tasked with church discipline. They're called to drive out the immoral, the false teachers, those who would stir up division or rebellion. That's what Paul calls the leaders in Galatia to do with false teachers in their midst, reminding them, he says this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you you will bear the penalty. He says, I know you're going to get the false teacher out of your midst because a little leaven will will leaven the lump. That's the constant instruction of Scripture. Remove the troublemakers, the false teachers, the immoral, or they will corrupt others. Now, all of that might sound totally reasonable 
or it may be a little bit confusing when you think about the company Jesus kept. (laughs) That's really the second thing we want to look at this morning. After all, with whom did Jesus spend most of his time, right? He notoriously avoided avoided the religious leaders, choosing instead to spend his time with uh, tax collectors, prostitutes, and the otherwise questionable sorts. He mocked the pious, the ones everyone wanted to be like, and we have to ask, so what's going on here? Did did Jesus even read Psalm 101? Did he promote a different view about the company we keep? Well, not really. Because at the very core of how Jesus chose whether he would spend time with someone or not was the issue of arrogance and humility, which is at the core of Psalm 101. He had incredibly gracious words for the humble, and he had decisive words of judgment for the arrogant. But the problem is, and this is the key here, the problem is that arrogance and humility don't always look like we think they will. Arrogance does not always demonstrate itself in wanton, sinful indulgence. That's obvious. The Pharisees were were actually the most pious people around. They were more uh, uh, structured and obedient to God's commands than most. They studied the scriptures, they prayed, they led disciplined lives. There was a reason that the people were attracted to them. They saw something that was admirable. From the outside, they looked like everything God wanted his people to be. And so they were attractive. And Jesus, when he attacked them, he didn't attack their piety, per se. What he attacked was their lack of humility. He said that the inside didn't match the outside. Because they thought they were better than others. They thought that their obedience obligated God to reward them. And Jesus pointed out their arrogance with absolute clarity. And when they were pushed, when they were challenged, when their facade was exposed, when their pride was called, they didn't repent. They showed their true selves. And it led them to the very things that Psalm 101 talks about. Deceit, slander, whispering in secret, You see, sometimes bad company looks really good. But if there isn't humility, run. If there's boasting, run. If there's a sense that they're getting it done, run. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's what was going on with the sinners, the the tax collectors, the prostitutes. Because among those sinners, Jesus found those who were broken and overwhelmed by their sin, their need for grace. They had no sense of of entitlement or that God owed them anything. And those were Jesus' kind of people. And so he went to them, not to be changed by them, but to bring them the grace and the forgiveness they so desperately needed. Remember how our psalm starts, Psalm 101, praising not just God's justice, but also his love? And which one comes first? It's love. 
Augustine regularly uh, referred to this psalm. And what he loved about it was that love comes first. And Augustine, who was a pretty smart guy, loved that because he wanted to point out to people that without God's love and grace, none of us can endure his justice. He says both are important, but love's got to come first. Justice matters, but it's God's mercy and his grace that prepare us to appreciate it and to face it. Put another way, Jesus loved sinners but had no intention of leaving them unchanged. He spent his time with them to see them changed. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more you will become like him. Because just as bad company corrupts, good company purifies. Beloved, if you want to be like Jesus, you have to spend time with him. Reading his word, praying, meditating in the biblical sense of meditating, thinking about chewing, and you need to spend time worshiping him. And we need to spend time with people who love him. The people we spend our time with will shape us. And when they love Jesus, they will push us to love him. They'll push us toward him. And we'll be better off for the time we spend with them. We're called to spend time with those who need God's grace, not avoid them. I'm not saying never spend any time with non-Christians. It's not it. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5 says something very interesting. It's one of those passages where Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? But then he goes on and he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, (laughs) or the greedy and swindlers or, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What Paul is saying is that one of the greatest dangers Christians face is is other Christians who are living without integrity. Whether that's obvious unrepentant sin or just piety without humility, it's a danger. They're dangerous because they, they lead us to drop our guard. Because we think, hey, he's a Christian and he does it. It must not be that bad. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be careful about spending time with non-Christians. If they're influencing you, if they're leading you, then things are backwards. And, and the truth is they shouldn't be, they can't be your main friends, your main support, your main encouragement, your main counselors, because they don't know the Lord. And when you seek counsel from them, they won't guide you towards His truth, but their own. If they're your preferred company, they will corrupt you. You must be careful with the company you keep. If you want to grow in godliness, you need godly people in your life, and you need to spend time with them. Pure and simple. 
Following that counsel will be a blessing and ignoring it will be painful. If you're not talking about the things of God and what's honoring, uh, what honoring him looks like, then you're telling people that he's not important to you and he shouldn't be important to them. If you're not talking to others about the Lord and doing so in humility, then you're... This, I, don't, I know this sounds harsh, but bear with me. If that describes you, then you're the sort of person this psalm is warning us against. We need to center our relationships around who God is and what he loves. And I want our younger people to hear this. Spend time with people who are the kind of person you want to be. Be the kind of person those people want to spend time with. (laughs) Talking about God should be a natural part of your conversations and life together. If it's not, something's broken. And even more importantly, I need to ask the young people, what are you looking for in a spouse? No person will affect you more, for better or for worse, than your spouse. If that person loves the Lord more than anything else, he or she will press you towards the Lord more and more. But if that person doesn't love the Lord more than anything else, he or she will draw you away from the Lord. You can't overstate the importance the Bible places on the company you keep. And that brings us back to that question of the company Jesus keeps. See, this is all intimidating. This is all heavy. Because we both think about the friends that we have, and then we think about the friend they have, (laughs) and we wonder, am I worthy? It's a journey. We don't all, uh, none of us, arrives at blamelessness on day one, (laughs) or day 18,062. I don't know how many years that is, it's just a number. Who does Jesus keep company with? Well, he keeps company with sinful people who want mercy and grace. There were many pious people who seemed so godly that he absolutely refused to eat with. And they were upset. What do you mean you don't eat with me? You eat with that tax collector over there. How do you know who I am? But he sought out and ate with the broken, the contrite, the humble, who said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Above all else, this table that sits before us this morning is a table for the humble, the contrite, and the broken. This table is a call to look at ourselves honestly and humbly because none of us is sufficient to withstand the corrupting influence of bad company on our own. Every one of us needs help, support, accountability, 
and encouragement. Most of all, we need Jesus to be in us, transforming us. But we also need the people he brings into our lives who keep pushing us and pointing us back towards him. And so at this meal, we, we do two things. We learn what kind of company Jesus keeps, us sinners. But we partake with each other and we realize those who partake with us are the ones that we are called to encourage and are called to encourage us. This is our family. This is our support. This is our encouragement. We're in it together and we need each other. This, con- this table then is a confession that we have nothing to commend ourselves with but the love of God. And those who come to this table then, broken and contrite and humility, they hear the sweetest invitation of Jesus, come and eat with me, you're my kind of people. (laughs) And they're reminded that while God opposes the proud, he indeed gives grace to the humble. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive uh, this wonderful gift from our God this morning. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that bad company ruins good morals. That we can't surround ourselves with bad influences and not expect to be influenced by them. And so may your love for us and our love for you not only guide the friendships we make, but shape the time we spend together so that you are continually at the center of all we say and do together. Father, may this church be known as a place where we encourage each other and push each other closer to you. But we can't do this on our own. It's our desire, but not our ability. It's our longing, but not within our strength. We need you. We need you to draw near to us and make us more like you. And so we ask that you would be pleased to work within us all of this through Jesus Christ, our faithful friend. Amen.